Uh, let me pray again before we look at the book of Habakkuk. Father, we are so thankful that you speak to us through Scripture. Uh, and we ask that as we open your text today, that you would in fact speak to us by your Spirit, and that you would speak to us about Jesus. That as we look at this little book from the Old Testament, that you would make it relevant, make it applicable, make it so that it would change us, change, us, change how we see reality around us, how we worship Jesus. Uh, we pray that, that you would act in a, in a mighty way in our hearts and minds and our bodies as we come to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you'd like to open your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk, uh, and I'm going to make an introduction to give you time to find the book of Habakkuk in your Bibles. It's between Nahum and Zephaniah, which probably tells most of you nothing, but it's, it's, in, the, it's in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament, so uh, look at the table of contents and find it. We really don't know very much about Habakkuk. In fact, we can't even agree on how to pronounce the word Habakkuk. Some of you, when you heard me say Habakkuk, you said Habakkuk. Is it Habakkuk or Habakkuk? It's either way is fine. You can say it either way you want, and, and, it, and it's totally appropriate. Uh, we just don't talk about Habakkuk very much, so we haven't agreed on how to say his name. This short book, only three chapters, we're going to start it today. It's going to take us about four or five weeks to get through it. Uh, so January, February of this year, we're going to spend in Habakkuk. And uh, it's a very short book. Oft, often forgotten book in the Old Testament, but I think it is particularly applicable to our lives today. And I know this is a big statement to make about a minor prophet in the Old Testament. I'll give you two reasons for that. One is that Habakkuk, like us, lived in troubled times, evil times, troubled times, confusing, uncertain times. And two, that he had a troubled heart, like many of us do even today. Troubled times and troubled hearts connect us to the book of Habakkuk. Let me tell you a little bit about his time. He lived uh, sometime before the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. And if you're taking notes, 586 B.C. is the date when Babylonians took over Jerusalem and uh, they sacked it and took everybody into exile. And so he lived sometime before that because he's talking about Babylonians still coming. However, how much before, we really don't know, really not sure. We know that he lived during a time of, of spiritual and moral and religious decline. We know it from, from this book. As you read it, he's complaining about many things wrong in his own culture. So, so we sort of speculate that maybe it was during the time of a king like Manasseh. King, uh, he was a king of Judah. King Manasseh was a particularly evil, wicked king. He reigned for 55 years, long reign. So it's, it's likely that Habakkuk lived during his time. It was a troubled time, marked by idolatry, oppression, injustice, immorality, violence, and a general disregard for God. Not unlike the time we live in today. Habakkuk also had a troubled heart. He had many questions about God's dealings with his people. He struggled. You see, he was trying to figure out what is God doing during this time when his people are really struggling. They're in this time of spiritual and moral and social decline. What is God doing? Why is God not responding to his once faithful people? So again, troubled heart. He's trying to figure out theologically what God is doing with all this suffering around him. 
Many of us deal with that today. Many of us have difficult situations at home, at work, at school, in our neighborhoods, and so we're also coming to God with the same questions. So this book is a dialogue between a troubled prophet living in troubled times, and he's God. He's bringing all those questions to God. Now, most of you know, if you've read the prophets, that prophets usually speak to the people on behalf of God. It's usually a message from God to his people. Not this book. This book is a record of a conversation between a prophet and his God. So in a sense, we're listening in on the questions that Habakkuk is asking of his God. It is very applicable to us, like I said, because we live in the same troubled times and with troubled hearts. And yet, it's not a message directly to us. It's a way for us to listen in and to to hear how God answers Habakkuk's questions. And I think Habakkuk knew that by writing it down, he's helping many people who are dealing with the same issues. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a preacher in London, he said the book of Habakkuk is the story of a believer's conflict of faith and of the ultimate triumph of faith. And that's true. In the beginning, you see Habakkuk very much troubled. His faith fragile. And yet, towards the end of the book, just in the span of you know, three chapters, we find him at peace. We find him joyful. Yes, joyful. Even though the circumstances have not changed, we find him, find him rejoicing in what God is doing and his presence in his life. So that's our journey, hopefully for the next four weeks, four or five weeks, as we try to go from trouble to triumph with Habakkuk as he's asking all these questions to God. So the sermon series is called Q&A with God, and this is round one today. We're going to look at Habakkuk 1, verses 1 through 11. So let me read it to you. You can follow along or just listen. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contentions arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And this is the Lord's answer to his question. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Now, we'll deal with what it means in in just, just a few minutes. But first, let's look at the nature of this dialogue, this nature of the conversation of, of Habakkuk and God. I think three things we need to notice is that this dialogue, this conversation is rooted in reality, number one, rooted in reality. Number two, it's resting in a relationship. And number three, it's revealing God's redemptive work. So it's real, it's relational, and it's redemptive. Let's look at each of these traits 
in order. It's rooted in reality. What I like about Habakkuk is that he's honest. He's not pretending that things are better than they are around him in his own culture. He's not pretending also that such reality of suffering around him doesn't affect his faith. It's bad outside, and it's starting to get bad inside, because I, I don't know how to process this. I don't know how to process how, how God tolerates suffering and seems to approve of all this wickedness around me. He's honest about it. He looks around, and this is what he sees. Violence, iniquity, destruction, strife, contention. He sees that the law, and I think he's talking about the law of Moses, that provided the foundation for, for moral and social order in Judah, is now paralyzed. It has no effect, it has no power on people. And so people do what they want, people do what's best for them, and not what is right. And so usually the result of that, when the law is paralyzed, the result of that inevitably is that the minorities, the marginalized, the disabled, disabled the poor, are oppressed. Because who has power? Power belongs to those who are willing to use wickedness and cruelty and violence and evil to get power. And so the wicked rule the righteous. And all of this is happening in Jerusalem, in the city that God himself chose to house his presence. God wanted a temple to be built for him to be in and to meet with his people and to speak to them and to accept the sacrifices for their sins. That's in Jerusalem. And yet, there's wickedness, there's cruelty, there's disregard for God in the very city that God chose to be in. Now, if it is happening during the reign of King Manasseh, which I think is likely, then we can look to 2 Kings 21 and get a little bit more detail on what that wicked king actually did. For example, Manasseh put pagan idols, so the images of other gods, other deities, inside the temple of the Lord. This is wicked. The king who was appointed by God himself to rule the nation and make sure that they stay close to God brings in idols into the very temple of the Lord. Manasseh sacrificed his own son as an offering. He burned his own son as an offering to the pagan deities. This is supposed to be a faithful king of a faithful people. During his reign, Manasseh established what they call in Scripture high places. Those are places of worship of, of various idols. So the idea is that if you're higher up, you're closer to whatever deity you're worshiping. And so there were all these images of Baals and Asterisks everywhere, and people worshiped other gods in the nation that was chosen by God to worship only him. He promoted fortune-telling, Omens, consulting with the dead, mediums, and so on. So the whole nation of Judah, the once faithful people, have now turned away from God under the leadership of the king and are worshiping multiple gods, disregarding the living Lord. It's a wicked time, an evil time. What I like about Habakkuk is that he is not hiding from it. He says, I see iniquity. He says, I see it. That means he's looking. Means he's engaging, means he's noticing what's going on around him. He's not simply dismissing it. He's not hiding, he's not moving away from it. He's engaged, he's looking to see what's going on, and it's wicked. And he brings all of that to God. He cries out to the Lord for help. 
When was the last time you prayed like Habakkuk? When was the last time you looked around yourself and said, this is a wicked time. This is an evil place. And you are so affected by it, you're so troubled by it, you're so disturbed by it that you cry out to the Lord. And you say, Lord, help me. I don't know how much longer I can survive in this place and in this time. And you're acknowledging the reality of wickedness and cruelty and iniquity around you, and you're praying to God. Now, perhaps we might say, well, we don't live in the same time. Our time is much better. Well, I have some statistics for you. And um, hopefully you know I'm not a big statistics guy, and also I'm not a guy to discourage you from being engaged in your culture. I think it's very important that we live in this world and we engage and we serve and we change it towards the better. But for a topic like this, I thought it would be helpful to look at the reality of where we live. Uh, the city of Chicago just reported 500 murders in our city in 2012. 500 people met violent deaths in our own city. In our own city. This is where we live. Within miles of us, people died violently. 500 people. Half a thousand people. In our own neighborhood, there's probably at least twice as many New Age organizations and stores than Christian churches. And by New Age, I mean uh, anything that promotes sort of the occult, you know, talking to the dead, fortune-telling, those kind of things. There's a place right across the street from our church that opened on Good Friday last year. Uh, there's, there are two or three places on Roscoe. There's, there's, a, um, there's a fortune teller on, on Lincoln by Gigi's Playhouse. It's all over. It's accepted. It's normal. And yet there's one church. We are the only church in the geographical bounds of Roscoe Village. There's others that are close to us that people go to, so we're not alone. But really, in the way the city defines Roscoe Village, we're the only Christian church. Planned Parenthood just reported a record year of abortions. Record year. They reported 333,000 964 children murdered in the last fiscal year. A third of a million people died. Of course, we can look at just a few weeks ago, 20 children murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. In our culture, it is acceptable for us to worship any idol we want, from such things like sex and power and money to such products as NFL and Apple and uh, celebrities. It's acceptable. This is the culture we live in. I'm going to say this just to shock you even more, okay? I read an article that talked about legitimizing pedophilia making it a sexual orientation and not a crime, but a sexual orientation like homosexuality. Today, in academic circles, specifically in Canada, but, but here as well, people are talking, psychiatrists and psychologists and, and sociologists are talking about legitimizing pedophilia. Now, again, I hope I hope you take this as something that I'm doing that's unusual, right? Because I, I, I don't like to rail against the world most Sundays. 
But when you come to a text like this, where Habakkuk says, I see iniquity, and I don't know what to do. Friends, that's us. We see iniquity, and we don't know what to do. Our culture is just as corrupt as Judah in Habakkuk's time. There is violence, right? There is deception. There is idolatry. There's all these horrible things happening around us. The question is whether we are engaging with that, whether we see it, whether we experience it, whether it's part of our reality, or are we pretending and ignoring it. And what this passage of Scripture in Habakkuk is teaching us is that we can have a real dialogue with God about what is really happening around us. We can be honest with God. This passage and many other passages, especially the Psalms, they teach us that we can come to God and complain about the world around us. We can do that. And He welcomes that. And aren't you glad that our God doesn't expect you to put on a happy face, a bounce in your step, and come to Him all happy. That God wants to engage with you on the basis of the reality around you, reality in your life. That our God is not waiting for you to get hold of your emotions, to calm down, to make sure you're presentable to Him and then pray. Oh no. Our God says, come to me with all your feelings, with all your struggles, with all your observations about your culture, about your family, about your life, about your work. And he says, talk to me on that level. Be real on that level. Now you remember in Nehemiah chapter 2, when Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king, which means he poured wine for the king. Great job, except that you might be beheaded. It's a likely possibility that you'd be beheaded. So he comes to the king, and the king says, why are you sad, Nehemiah? What kind of question is that? Why is he talking to Nehemiah about how Nehemiah feels? What does he care Well, the reason is because he is surprised that somebody, a servant in his presence, appears to be sad. Because everybody was supposed to be happy in the presence of the king. And here comes Nehemiah, visibly sad. It's unusual. And so the king wonders about that. Because why would you go into the king's presence and upset him with your problems? But that's not our king, is it? Our king says, come to me, all you wearied and burdened and heavy laden, all of your issues, you come to me with the reality of what you're experiencing and you engage with me on that level. That's what our God says. Our God says, you come to me and tell me what is going on around you. And I know that many of you in this church, in this neighborhood, are struggling with deep issues, with significant, tremendous struggles in your life. I know that that some of your families are not doing well, some of your marriages are not doing well, some of your marriages are doing horribly, some of your children are doing horribly, some of you are sick and you have tremendous health concerns, some of you are not sure how you're going to pay your bills, tomorrow maybe some bills are due. And so all those issues that you are dealing with, the question is, are you being honest with God? When you come to Him, when, when you pray, are you being honest about the reality of your life? whether it's your culture around you or whether it's personal crisis that you are dealing with. Are you being real? Are you praying like Habakkuk? He prays, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? When was the last time you prayed like that? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Or cry to you cancer and you will not heal. Or cry to you divorce and you will not reconcile. Or cry to you addiction, and you will not cure. Or cry to you depression, and you will not restore. 
or cry to your need and you will not provide? Are you bringing your struggles to the Lord in that way? Honest about what's really going on in your life and life around you, and you come into the Lord with those issues. Are you bringing your struggles directly to the Lord in prayer? In a season of struggle, I know that some believers experience a tremendous revival in their spiritual life. Some of you have gone through, through really bad things lately. Tell me that I've never felt closer to God than I do now. God is doing something in my heart that he, he hadn't done before. Now I feel so close to him. I feel peace in the midst of all this turmoil in my life. I feel certainty in his presence, even though my life is far from certain. And so you experience this, this tremendous revival of your life with God. And you're dealing with these issues honestly with God. And then others of you, some of you have the same struggles. When I ask you about your spiritual life, you say, well, I kind of forget to pray. I haven't read my, my Bible in a while. I don't really engage with God much anymore. I come to church and I do my stuff. But I don't really have this relationship with God like I used to. So what's the difference? Why do some Christians respond with such, a, such an uplift you know, in, in their spiritual lives and others it's just it's dead, it's passive? What's the difference? This is my take on it. Okay, so take it for what it's worth. I think I may be right, maybe not. I think the difference is that some of us are afraid to ask these questions to God. When we look at our life and everything is falling apart, we are afraid that if we start talking to God about that, then our faith is also going to fall apart. So we'd rather put up a front and pretend that our faith is right and it's fine and it's, it's healthy than actually engage with God about these issues. To have an honest dialogue with God, it takes some risk, right? Because how do you know if you're going to come out of it a Christian? What if you talk, start talking to God like Habakkuk does? When you say, God, all this crazy stuff is going on in my life and you're not there. You start asking those kind of questions to God. What if he is not there? What if he does not save? What if he does not heal? What if you discover that your faith is not real and that God isn't real? I think that fear holds a lot of us back from being honest with God about our particular issues. Because what, what Habakkuk is doing, he's asking dangerous questions. He's asking offensive questions to God. And if you read further in the chapter, chapter, he starts talking about God's nature and he starts saying, God, you are from everlasting. How can you do this? And so when we start doing that, it seems blasphemous. Who knows how God is going to respond or if God is even there at all? And I think for many of us, that holds us back. And so we miss out on that revival in our spiritual life because we are holding back, not sure how God is going to address these problems. Now, that's why we need to move to the second point of the sermon. It's, it's crucial. That yes, you need to be real and honest with God, but the reason you need to be real and honest with God is because you are in a relationship with Him. You need to rest in this relationship with God if you are hopeful to be real and honest with Him. When you feel that by asking these questions, you may be rejecting God altogether, maybe questioning Him, maybe going too far, maybe blasphemy. You need to remember that God is committed to be in a relationship with you. That you can bring your questions to God and He will answer them. 
Now, when people come to me, and, and, and you know, most of us have these big questions. Most of us are dealing with the same things Habakkuk is dealing. Where is God in my suffering? Why does God tolerate evil? And so when specifically those questions get raised, and uh, people come to me and they say, well, how do I deal with that? I, I, don't, I don't know if I can really handle that. My advice is always, always, it is to me and it is to everybody else, is to bring those questions to God. Take those questions to God. Don't deal with them on your own. Don't try to figure, figure them out because there are smart answers to those questions. There are answers to those questions, but that's not how you're going to figure them out. You have to take them to God and you have to allow God himself to answer them for you. Because you are in a relationship with him and that's where things get figured out and dealt with. It's in a relationship, in a conversation with him. If this example of Habakkuk is right, if this experience of Habakkuk of asking these questions and getting answers and finding peace and triumph in his faith, if it's true, then your questions need not lead to quitting. Your frustration need not result in the loss of faith. Your fear need not lead to failure. Your anxiety need not bring apostasy into your life. If his experience is right, it gives us hope. It gives hope for our troubled times and our troubled hearts that if we talk to God, we can figure it out. That there are answers, that in a relationship with him, we can grow and we can, our faith can get stronger. And that's what's happening with Habakkuk. If you read the whole book, you will see he ends up in a place where his faith is much stronger, his peace is much more real, his joy is authentic, even though his circumstances have not changed. So if it's true, we need to be real with God, resting in a relationship with him. Let me say this, and I hope that we remember this past the sermon. It is absolutely safe to ask the most dangerous questions in prayer. It is absolutely safe to ask the most dangerous questions in prayer. Some of those dangerous questions are not safe to ask outside of it. But it is absolutely safe to bring them to God. Think about it. Your faith tells you that God is real. Your faith tells you that God is loving and that he cares for you and that he's powerful enough to change your life. That's your faith. Why would that change if you simply ask those questions of God? If he's real, don't you think he's going to prove himself to be real when you talk to him? If he cares, don't you think he's going to respond in a caring way? If he's loving, don't you think he's going to love you even as you're dealing with these issues and these questions? You see, if it's true, if God is true, if God is real, our worry can become worship. Our apprehension can become praise. Our despair can lead to delight in the goodness of our God. God welcomes these real questions because He's real and because He's in a real relationship with you. And so bring it to Him. Don't pretend your faith is intact when everything else is falling apart. It's not. You're, you're struggling. You're dealing with that. You're asking important questions. Ask God those questions. And let him answer. Let him, let him come into your life in a different way and talk with you differently because your experience is now different. Now, another objection rises as we think about it. 
What if you bring these real questions to God? And what if you believe in your relationship with Him and He decides to break that relationship? What if you go too far? What if you say something stupid to Him and God says, I'm done with you? Like you post a status on your Facebook and somebody will unfriend you. Is that how God acts? When you say something and God says, I'm done with you, He'll just fire you because you didn't measure up to His expectations. If you see a relationship with God in that way, that you can do something to, for God to say, I'm done with you. If that's how you see your relationship with God, you will never be real. You will never be honest with Him. Because you will always be afraid that you will say something that's going to end that relationship. But that's not the way the relationship with God is described in Scripture. The way we see the relationship with, with God described in the Gospel is that it is by grace. It's by grace. This is the fundamental, central truth of the Gospel. God loves you because God loves you. God loves you because God loves you. If you get this, everything else falls into place. God doesn't love you because you've done something for Him. God doesn't love you and maintain this relationship with you because you accurately understand His ways or because you stoically accept His will or because you, you support and you're you have this unwavering commitment to his plans. That's not why God loves you. So when you start questioning those things, God says, I love you because I love you. I love you by grace because I chose to love you because I did something that enabled me to love you and I'm not going away. God says, I'm not, I'm not quitting on you. In a relationship that's based on grace, you can be real, you can rest in that relationship and God will answer your questions. In the midst of all your struggles, you know what God's main concern is? It is to nourish that relationship with you. God is not considering whether you just said something that would make him walk away. He's not. And Habakkuk knows that. You will see it even more clearly as we go through the book. He talks about justification by faith and rejoicing in the midst of barrenness. We'll look at all that later. But, but just believe me that Habakkuk knows that. Because he's walking into this conversation, into this Q&A with God, and there's no way Habakkuk is thinking he's going to walk away from God. Oh no, that's not an impossibility for him. He's bringing all these difficult questions to God, secure in his relationship with him. He's not going to walk away, but he has some serious issues with God, and he's going to deal with them. Now look at how God responds to Habakkuk. This is... This is so encouraging for me, and I hope it is for you. Verse 5, God says in response to this accusation that God is not doing anything while all this stuff is going on around in Judah, God says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God says, I know you're not going to understand or believe what I'm just telling you right now. God says, I know you're going to really struggle with accepting what I'm actually doing at this time. But he says, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I'm still going to reveal to you what I'm doing. Why? Because they're in a relationship. And because people who are close don't hide things from each other. Because friends share plans and ideas and emotions. God is saying, I'm going to tell you what I'm, what I'm doing right now because we are in a relationship together. So even though you don't understand, even though you don't get it, I'm going to tell you anyway because I want this dialogue, I want this, I want this conversation to go on. And so God responds 
to Habakkuk. Now this makes me think of, of talking to preschoolers about electricity. If you have preschoolers, you have small children, they ask many questions. I remember distinctly with, I think, I have four daughters, so I think there's like two of them. I remember distinct times when, when it actually, the conversation changed when they started asking questions why and how things work. Before they were just, you know, wanting food and stuff. But, but then it's like they start wondering about how the world works. And, and so they start asking these questions. How does electricity work? Not the right person to ask that question. I still don't understand, honestly. Phones, I don't understand how phone works. So, so but, but these, these small kids ask these questions. What does a good parent do when, when a kid asks me, how, tell me how the lights work? A good parent is going to take the next 40 minutes to explain something there's no way that child will ever understand until they get old. And they're going to take that time and they're going to wrestle with this issue and they're going to have this, this dialogue that never ends because after everything you explain it, they always say why. There's just more explaining to do and then they say why. They're just never happy with their answers. But a good parent is not going to say shut it. I'm not going to talk to you about electricity. A good parent is going, to, is going to take that time and explain something they can't understand. This is exactly what God is doing here. God says, you're not going to get it. You're not going to understand this. It's going to seem weird to you, and you're going to wrestle with that even more than you're wrestling with the issues now. But I'm going to tell you. Why? They're in a relationship. And in a relationship, you talk about things like that. You reveal things to each other. And so, this is tremendously encouraging. Because as you come in into this conversation with God, with all your issues, if you're trying to be real, and you're trying to rest in this relationship with God that is based on grace, God responds. He responds. He talks to you. He reveals what he's doing. He's dealing with issues that, that bother you. Tim Keller, uh, a preacher in New York, calls this kind of prayer unconditional faithful wrestling. Unconditional faithful wrestling. You really are wrestling with these big issues. You're not hiding from them. You really are bringing these, these almost blasphemous questions to God. But you're doing it in a faithful way, unconditionally. You're not saying, God, if you don't answer this question well, I'm out. You don't say that. That's not what Habakkuk says. You commit to it and you say, I, got, I, got, I need some answers for these things. And I know you have the answers. And I want to wrestle with them with you because we're in a relationship together. Um, one of my favorite passages in Scripture is John 6. And by this time, those of you who have been around church and my preaching for a while, you're probably saying, how many favorite passages does he have? Every Sunday, there's a new favorite passage. This is my best favorite passage. My favorite, favorite passage. So, John 6. Uh, and I'll read from verse 66. But what's happening there is Jesus is, is, is teaching these really crazy things to, to the crowds that are following him. He's saying, unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you have no part with me. Crazy stuff, right? Nobody understands what he's talking about. The crowds leave. Everybody leaves. The only people who stay behind are the 12 apostles, or the, the disciples. And so, Jesus turns to them, and every, remember, everybody's gone, there's 12 people left behind, and Jesus says to them, do you want to go away as well? He said, should you, should you be going with the crowds? And Simon Peter, in a, in a very characteristic Peter type of, type of answer, um, gives this amazing piece of wisdom. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know 
that you are the Holy, the Holy One of God. He's saying, yes, we want to go, but where are we going to go? Who else is going to answer these questions to us? Do you think Peter and the disciples understand any better what Jesus was talking about that the crowds who love? I don't think so. I think they're all confused. I think this talk of eating blood, you know, drinking blood and eating flesh turned everybody away. But the twelve stayed behind because they're thinking, we know who you are. We've been with you. We've been in a relationship with you. We know what you're like. And there's nobody else in the world who would rather be wrestling with these issues but you. They don't know what the answers are going to be. But they're saying, hey, you know what? We're sticking around because there's nowhere else to go. That's the attitude of the Christian. When you come into God in prayer and you say, I have no idea how, how you're going to explain these things happening in my life right now. But I know there's nobody else that would have any better answers than me. You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Who else is going to do better? And maybe I disagree with you right now on a lot of things in my life. Who else is going to run my life better than you? And so you come to God and you wrestle with him in this unconditional, faithful wrestling. So this dialogue with God, this conversation with God, it's rooted in reality. You have to see what's around you and what's, what's in your life and be honest with yourself and with God. But you also have to rest in the relationship that's based on grace, that God isn't going to turn away from you when you're going to say these weird, offensive, blasphemous things. That God is going to answer you, that God is going to care for you. And the last point, that in the process of that conversation, just like he did with Habakkuk, God is going to reveal his redemptive work. God is going to say that even though you feel like I'm being completely passive, and I don't care, that's not true. I'm doing something in your life right now, and I'm going to show you what I'm doing. So look at the Lord's answer to Habakkuk first, and we'll relate it to, to our own experience. The Lord says, verse 5 and 6, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God says, you think I'm doing nothing? Oh no, I'm doing a remarkable work right now. God says, even as you're questioning whether I'm working or not, I am working. And this is what I'm doing. He says, I'm raising up these people from Babylon, Chaldeans and Babylonians, the same, same people. And he says, I'm going to bring them, these powerful people, and they're going to take over Judah, they're going to take over Jerusalem, they're going to take everybody out, they're going to hurt a lot of people. But in the process of that, when the Judeans come back to Jerusalem, they're going to be free from idolatry. And that's when Jesus comes. That's what's implied in this text if you know the rest of the story of Scripture. God says, oh, you think I'm not doing anything. Oh, no, no, I'm working for your redemption. I am redeeming you even as we speak. He's saying, I'm putting things in motion that will produce the redemption of my people, the faithfulness of my people. They will come back to me as the result of this work. Now, here's what's surprising about this answer to Habakkuk. Next week, we're going to deal with his surprise because he doesn't like this answer. This is what's surprising, two things. One, nobody thinks at this time that the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are the next superpower. 
they're this insignificant, fairly insignificant nation under the rule of Assyria, under complete control of Assyria. Nobody's expecting Babylon be the next Assyria. And here God says, you know what, this seems weird to you, and it seems surprising, but I'm raising these people, the Babylonians, to take over Judah one day and to punish this iniquity that you're now complaining about. It would be like me telling you today, God is raising the Ukrainians. Just wait. Just wait. Ukrainians are going to take over the world. Why is everybody laughing when I say that? Because Ukrainians are an insignificant people under, well, whoever control we are now. This is how it sounds to Habakkuk. And he said, what? what are you talking about? Babylonians? There's another surprising thing about this answer. And that surprising thing is that God is saying, I'm going to use this greater evil, greater cruelty, to punish the things that you're complaining about. Habakkuk doesn't like that either. He's complaining about cruelty and evil. And God says, you know what? I'm going to make it worse. But as I make it worse, I'm going to make it better. And he says, just trust me that I am working right now. Now, let's say, let me give you a real-life illustration. Let's say somebody comes to me and says, I have this horrible boss at work, and I'm just praying and praying that God will remove and bring a new person. And then you hear that this boss has been fired and a new person has come. And you say, this is great. God is bringing in somebody better. And then you show up to work on Monday, and he's worse, even worse than the boss that you prayed away. This is what God is answering. This is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to bring a greater evil and a greater cruelty and violence to deal with the cruelty and violence and evil in Judah. It's a surprising answer. But what we need to keep in mind is that God is saying, I'm doing that for the redemption of my people. And we've seen that in Scripture, that through that cruelty, through the exile of, of Judah, people were taken out, they were dispersed all over the ancient world, and they gave up their idolatry. And it prepared the time for Jesus to come. That's very important. As God raised new superpower after new superpower, we finally get to Rome. Romans built roads. Romans provided peace across the empire. Romans provided a common culture and enforced a common language. And so the gospel could spread so swiftly that even today sociologists write about it and they wonder how it happened that the church grew so much in such a short period of time. Why? Because God all this time was working behind the scenes to bring about the redemption for his people. Now, let's apply it to our lives if we, as, as we wrap up a little bit. God says, God's answer to our honest questions and a real relationship God's answer is, I am working. I am pursuing my redemptive purposes. They're being fulfilled. I'm doing something for your good, and I'm doing something that I promised to do a long time ago. It's not going to happen the way you expect it. We are not all that smart to figure out what God is doing. So God says, what seems to you like just simply my punishment is in fact discipline is in fact me working through your life to bring you to a better place with me, to a place of a greater blessing. He says, yes, through things like Babylonian captivities and dispersion of the Jews and cruelty and violence in Jerusalem, I'm working out my redemptive purposes. Yes, through things like cancer and divorce and bankruptcy, I am working out my redemptive purposes in life. 
God says, when you're asking me those questions, and you say, God, how come I see all this iniquity and you're not there and you're not working? God says, I am working. I am here. And he says, trust me that what I'm telling you right now is true, that I have not forsaken you, that I'm still working out the same purposes I have been for, for, for all of your life, and that what's at the end of it is good for you, and it brings me glory. That's God's answer to Habakkuk. That's God's answer to us. God says, don't miss what I'm doing. Don't ignore my redemptive purposes. Don't believe that what I'm doing right now is not redemptive. It's not good for you. It is. So as we offer our honest, real questions to God, his answer is trust in my redemptive work in your life. Now, my last question and answer for the sermon. Probably the most important one. How can you trust him? When everything in your life has fallen apart and you finally are honest with yourself and with God about it, and God says, trust that I am working my redemptive purposes in your life, how can you trust him? Instead of asking the question, God, what are you doing? Ask the question, God, what have you done? Look back at what God has done already to get the trust and security and confidence in your relationship with him. Now, in Acts 13, this is in the New Testament, when Paul is preaching, Paul is preaching to people who had never heard about Jesus. And he's talking about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And he finishes his sermon by quoting verse 5 from our text in Habakkuk. And this is how Paul, he's using a different, he's using a Greek translation, not just your care. He's using a different translation, so it sounds a little different in Acts 13, uh, verse 40 and 41. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Said in Habakkuk, should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you to. Paul's not talking about Babylon, like Habakkuk. What work is Paul talking about that they might miss, they might not believe, even if it's told to them, as he is speaking to them about? He's talking about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And as he's preaching, he's saying, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Like many have missed it. Don't miss it. As you wrestle with God, based on your reality, based on your relationship, wrestle with God on the basis of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He says, ask what you're doing right now, but also ask, what have you done, God? And God says, look what I've done. My son was crucified for you. My son was raised from the dead for your justification, for your forgiveness of sins, to give you meaning and joy and love and peace in your life. God says, you can trust me. You can trust me because of what I've done. So that whatever I'm doing right now, you can believe it's redemptive. You can believe it's good because of what I've done in the past. Those questions of trust in God must be settled at the cross of Jesus. They must be settled there. You cannot decide whether you will trust God or not based on your experience today. You can trust God based on what he's done with Jesus. So you look back and you say, God, what have you done? Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. How can I question him? How can I doubt that he loves me, that he cares for me when he gave his only son for me? How can the God who gave me his son would not also give me all good things? You go back to the cross you stay real, you stay honest, you root it in the relationship with Christ by faith, 
but you can trust him because of Jesus.